If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. So our topic today is the question of whether we can really ever know everything, or can we even know most things? Can we know anything at all? The question of knowledge, how we construct it, how we absorb it, whether we're really capable of taking it on, is one of the most central aspects of being a human being. And to discuss it, we have an eminently expert panel. On my right, we have Robert Roland Smith. Robert is a, and the technical term I think is Quandam Fellow of All Souls College. He is a consultant, a lecturer. He writes on philosophy and uh, essentially is a philosopher who's actually managed to make a private business of philosophy, which must make you, uh, I have to say, probably uh, one up on Wittgenstein on that one. Uh, um, his books include the books Death Drive and also Breakfast with Socrates, which presumably includes... Uh, Pork sausages lightly laced with hemlock, something along those, uh, those lines. Great pleasure to have you here, Robert. On my immediate left, we have Jana Teller. Jana started life as a macroeconomist, but she's asking for us not to hold that against her, <laughs> unless she brings it in too uh, forcefully into the conversation today. She is also an award-winning novelist. She's written, in fact, seven novels, including the existential novel Nothing. May I ask if it only has... Uh, uh, one page, or is it a little longer no, than that? No, it's about the meaning of life, but it's still a sh you know, short one. So. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the meaning of life, but maybe nothing, oh. uh, nothing good. Jan originally um, hails from uh, Denmark, which has a Danish passport, but she is at pains also to tell me that she does not wish to be described as a cosmopolitan. So I would just say that she has experience of many different parts of the world. And on the left of our panel here, we have Professor John Ellis. John is Clark Maxwell, Professor of Theoretical Physics at King's College London, and a physicist at CERN. He was, in fact, the man who coined a term which we now hear unceasingly and unfailingly, the term theory of everything. And he was also the co-author of the first paper on something, again, that is very much part of our everyday scientific conversation, how to find the Higgs boson. He wrote that all of 40 years ago, back in 1976. And I think it's fair to say that all three of our speakers today have different, if not necessarily entirely oppositional, positions to each other. So what I'm going to do is ask each of them to speak to us for no more than four minutes in turn to give us 
their take on this question of whether or not we can ever really know reality. And Robert, I'm going to start with you to ask that very question. Can we really know what is real? So you started asking the question of whether we can actually know everything. And uh, it made me think about Hegel, who's a German philosopher writing in the late 18th, early 19th century. And Hegel had this notion that there would one day be a thing called absolute knowledge. And he talked about this as the goal and destiny of all, uh, not just philosophy, but all knowing. But I guess the, uh, the kind of fatal flaw in his argument was that he thought that by talking about absolute knowledge, there was this objective way of understanding the world and everything in it, which would exclude his own position, that his own subjective position would not be factored into that. And I guess that's an important first thing to say, that um, the idea of knowing everything suggests that we can know everything objectively, as though we don't ourselves have personal interests or preferences or prejudices when it comes to describing whatever, the, whatever that everything might be. So I suppose in that sense, you know, there's going to be some kind of limit on, on knowing everything, everything in the world. Second point I'd say is that, and I'm no scientist, and, and John will, will, I'm sure, talk more eloquently about this than I will, but if you think about the history of science, you know, on the one hand, it's the story of extraordinary progress. You know, what we know about the world now and what, what we can describe is, is amazing. But if you look back at the history of science, there are clearly, you know, moments that you know, one might sort of come to regret. I mean, if you think about uh, sort of famous examples in the 18th century about, you know, how eyesight worked, for example. There were kind of theories that light was emitted from the eyes in kind of eye beams. Well, you know, not a bad theory at the time, but it's been superseded. And from that point of view, sometimes it looks like the history of science is really the history of provisional assertion. And those assertions over time get either displaced, discredited, or at least revised. So I think you know, we have to be very careful, even if we're taking a scientific or empirical approach, to believe that you know, we can conquer the, the dark continent of, of, of the not known simply with more and more empirical effort, because you know, uh, the chances of theories being overturned down the road can never, be, can never be undone completely. But I guess the main point I want to make really is, is that there are other forms of knowing than the kind of knowing implicit in the question I think that, that Rana's asking here, because I think the question sort of implies that, you know, just by thinking and research and empirical gathering and cognitive analysis, that we could harvest everything there is to know about the world. And it may be true, but I think that is just one way of knowing, and there are other ways of knowing. So, for example, um, there are bodily ways of knowing. You know, as you walk into a room, there are ways of picking up what it's like to be in this room. Now, Again, those are perhaps subjective ways of knowing, but the body knows things about the world around it in a way that the mind doesn't. And often, actually, it's a much more accurate and certainly more immediate reader or kind of registerer of what's going on around, whereas the mind sometimes gets very quickly into theory, into uh, analyzing, and kind of sometimes loses the plot a little bit. So I'm interested in other forms of knowing, I suppose, not just the kind of cognitive scientific knowing, and I don't know if bodily knowing will ever yield the entire sum of what there is to be known, but I do know it gives us other ways into uh, knowing, and not to mention, um, I guess, forms of knowing which lie somewhere between the kind of cognitive knowing, the scientific knowing on the one hand, if you like, and the bodily knowing on the other hand, and that's something which you might talk about in terms of intuition. How valid is intuition as a form of knowing? Sometimes we feel our, our intuition is absolutely 
spot on and, and our intuition can give us a more accurate reading than any amount of analysis that we might bring to bear on a given situation. So that's what I'd say. Um, you know, if we look at the history of science, perhaps it's the history of provisional assertion. That's in no way to, uh, to dampen the enthusiasm for it, but there, there will always, I think, be limits. As I said to begin with, there's always going to be the question of the subjective view of the person providing objective analysis. And then thirdly, you know, what about these other ways of knowing, which we all have, bodily knowing, intuitive knowing, which are sometimes actually more precise than, than anything else we might have to nail it down. Thank you, Robert. John Ellis, I'm going to turn to you next, if I may. And well, I think it's uh, actually you know, totally amazing that you know, a bunch of apes running around the African savannah you know, two million years ago you know, gave up, you know, rise to us and were able to understand so much. I think that's a, that's a miracle. Well, actually, I don't really think it's a miracle. I think it's... <laughs> oh, we could have had a world-exclusive there from the Professor of Theoretical Physics. <laughs> so, so actually, actually, it's evolution. And, uh, but I think it's remarkable that you know, these sort of uh, skills or these talents or these cognitive capabilities that enabled us to survive in the savannah now also enable us to understand so much about the way the universe apparently works, you know, what, what, uh, what is real in some sense. And uh, I understand now that there are biologists who claim that actually you know, reality is, is not objective. This is just something that's constructed by our senses, which are in turn you know, controlled by, by evolution. Uh, so I think it's just bullshit, okay? <laughs> so, so my wife is going to be upset with that, but I'll say it again, it's bullshit. So, so I think uh, you know, we've learned to extend our, our senses uh, by making uh, spectacles, uh, microscopes, telescopes, particle accelerators. Uh, we've learned how to extend our brains. Uh, you talked about big data a moment ago. Uh, we're now, I think, beginning to learn how to apply at least our models for how the brain works to extract more information from the data that, that we have. So, uh, indeed, as Robert said, I think uh, you know, things are advancing. Uh, we discover things. We discovered the Higgs boson a few years ago. Uh, just earlier on this year, gravitational uh, waves were discovered. Uh, so, so I take Robert's point that often what we think of as uh, a theory or as our model of reality uh, is provisional. This is true. But I think, nevertheless, I have a somewhat Victorian concept that we're still advancing. Uh, it's not that you know, Newton... Newtonian mechanics is wrong, it's that we now have a, a theory which can be, extends Newton mechanics to, to other applications, like, for example, the fusion of, uh, of black holes. So our old knowledge is not overturned so much as, uh, as supplemented. So, so is this progress, is this going to continue forever? Uh, yeah, I think it will continue forever. But does that mean that we're going to know everything? Not necessarily. In fact, I sincerely hope that we don't. So I think we're somewhat on the same wavelength there. Uh, that uh, you know, I, I think it's very good for uh, the human race in general, and specifically us scientists, to find some things puzzling and some things strange, some things that we don't understand. Uh, after all, if we understood everything, then we scientists would be out of a job, right? So, <laughs> uh, so I, I, one way that I think about this is uh, I actually started off as a mathematician. And one thing that you learn as a mathematician is that you construct you know, systems, logical systems like uh, numbers. Okay. And then after a while, uh, you realize uh, that uh, actually there are some questions in the theory of numbers that 
don't have a definite answer. Uh, so it's Kurt Gödel who, who proved this back in the 1930s. So if that's true of mathematics, it must a fortiori be true of the universe, that there will always be questions that we can formulate but we can't find answers to. And uh, so there's always going to be some sort of limitation to what we can say about reality. Jana, you've heard now two positions put forward there about trying to address the question of why it is that with more and more knowledge we can understand some things about reality but not everything. What's your thought about whether we can, should and will understand reality? Um, well, I mean, I wrote my or thought through my pitch on this question, why does the world remain puzzling and strange? And I have three different answers. Um, one is, actually, it's not, you know, that uh, puzzling and strange, we, we do understand it. And the other is, it's endless and we are not, so it's pretty obvious. And the third, you know, uh, answer would be, of course, it would be preposterous to think that we could understand it, that we are not supposed to. And these three totally different answers do link up uh, together in the sense we are made of the same molecules and matter that everything else in, in the universe. And I was happy that, that Rob was talking about bodily knowledge, and I thought I would talk a bit about that, but since you already did, so I'll go the next and say, why do we have bodily knowledge? We can only have bodily knowledge because what we are made of uh, is the same that the entire world is made up of. So what we somehow feel and experience, we can extrapolate into both other human beings, but also other animals, plants, life, the universe as such. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to comprehend anything. Um, so this is where the first answer comes into place, that actually the world does not remain puzzling and strange. When we allow ourselves to simply be part of it, it's amazing how much we understand. Just being. And then maybe it's more like the question actually goes away because it's not even the right question. We know then we are part of life and we don't need to ask more questions. Um, it's, it's a com I think a complete acceptance of, of being part of that matter. But then the second one where, of course, we cannot understand everything, that, and that goes to what you were saying, that the world is infinite and, and our lifetime, then even if we can extend it you know, by medicaments from even 100 years more, we'll still have only a limited time on this earth. And, and I think even if we lived for 100,000 years, we wouldn't be able to understand it. Um, but, but still, we remain uh, something that has an end and the world is endless. So it's evident we can never understand everything. And the last thing that we're not supposed to comes out of this thing that, okay, we are made of the same as matter as the rest of the world, but there's also a lot more matter than what we are made of as individuals or, or even a combination of many brains together. Uh, we can put all that knowledge in computers that we can even think together, but there's still always more matter than what we are made of, and that matter we can never comprehend, and we are just not supposed to, whether it's God or not, or Big Bang or something, we are simply not created to understand the matter that's really beyond us. But it's also fine. That sets us up very nicely for the next theme that we want to tackle in this discussion, which is actually about two things that you've mentioned just now. One is science and its methods, and one is language and what it can contain. And I think we should spend a bit of time discussing how far this type 
of methodology in each case is able, framework, is able to capture reality and where it falls short if it does fall short. I mean, let me throw again, you know, an, a, probably an overly crudely drawn question, John, but just to, to start us off. Would you accept that the scientific method as has developed over the last, you know, X hundred years, the question of taking empirical data, experimentation, observation, building up of knowledge, that ultimately in principle, there is any type of knowledge that can't be captured by that method? Well, I, I, I think this, this classical uh, idea for how science advances and how new knowledge is acquired is, is oversimplified. Uh, I did I, say it was very crude, but then it's Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, bullshit. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, it doesn't uh, allow for the importance of intuition. I think both Jana and Robert mentioned intuition as being very important and, and an important way of, of gathering knowledge. And I completely agree with that. As a practicing scientist, uh, you know, it's often intuition that you know, makes the great leaps forward. Of course, then you have to do the experiment, you have to gather the data, you have to interpret them and so on. But I think that it's often this sort of non-rational way of acquiring knowledge is, is incredibly important, also for a scientist. Now, forgive me, I'm not a scientist, nor do I play one on TV or indeed anywhere else, but wouldn't a super ultra-rationalist, realist type of scientist say, there ain't no such thing as intuition. What you're describing is a combination of neurons and synapses and consciousness and so forth going on in a way that if we knew enough about the chemistry, we could explain. And what you're calling, and use the word there, John, non-rational, actually can be rationally explained. It's just we haven't done it yet. Uh, well, touche, maybe. <laughs> uh, yesterday afternoon, I was uh, participating in a meeting about machine learning. Uh, where uh, people try to uh, use what they think are features of the way the brain works to uh, mine information from, from big data. And uh, often, you know, the computer does things that you really don't understand what the hell it's been doing. Right? So is this similar to the way the brain operates? I, I don't know. So I, I'm not able to answer your question. But the question isn't, do you know, which, you know, I forgive, forgive you for not knowing because this field is, uh, is, is from what I can tell, advancing so fast. The question is, can we know? Can you see a sort of methodology by which, if we had enough time, knowledge, and experimentation, we could know the answer to that question? Or would it, is it plausible that it could remain infinitely in the realm of things we simply won't understand as human beings? <laughs> the only possible answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a, very, a very fair answer, uh, answer indeed. No, I, I, I don't see any limitations at the present time, but that doesn't mean to say there aren't limitations. It just means that... I'm limited a little bit along the lines of what Jana was saying a moment ago. Well, speaking of limitations, I mean, Jana, let me throw it back to you. Um, by definition, we are discussing this particular set of questions through the only mechanism that humans have to do that, and that is language. At the moment, we're using one particular language, which is English, but there are a range of human languages which can capture various aspects of, of reality. How fully, how completely do you think, as a skilled practitioner of language yourself, do you think we can capture reality through that tool? I think when we speak like, you can say in, in straight explanatory language, um, we can only capture the reality in the way that our, um, I mean, frontal cortex can understand. I mean, the consciousness, um, I guess the psychology would call it the, I mean, the over eye uh, can mm. understand. That language doesn't speak to 
the rest of the ways we can know things to the instinct, to the bodily language. So that's always the problem with language. Um, it's like if I talk about a glass, for example, I'll write a story with a glass. Okay, you can all consciously imagine I hold the glass, or you, the kind of glass you would think, but you can't feel it. You can't have a bodily experience of it. Um, Is this what some philosophers would call, oh, actually, Robert, could I ask, some philosophers would call these qualia, is that right, the sort of mm -hmm. the quality of, 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 of something? Mm -hmm. um, so, my language is proving inadequate, but... Okay, yeah. I, but I just want to go on to, to yeah. answer that and say that because of that, that it's a representation already. So language is already interpretation of what goes on in our system. So it can never fully capture something. But this is where stories and when we put together an argument more fully, you can capture things in another way. I just think if it's capture like so-called the, the everything, you never can. But in a story, you can at least capture a universe, any kind of theory or analysis, you can only capture corners because if you want to describe precisely, you know, it's, I don't know, you have to take that corner and describe it. Do you find yourself, when you're writing, ever becoming frustrated at an inadequacy of language to actually describe what it is that you want to say? Yeah, always. <laughs> um, and maybe particularly because I'm culturally so mixed and, mm. you know, until recently I wrote in Danish, and every, you know the culture there is very laid back, and I think culture is language. It grows, or the language grows out of the culture. My other half is Austrian. That's everything is melodramatic, life and death. And not, not that we're resorting to kind of overarching <laughs> statements might, at all we here. Might, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that just doesn't fit. And there, you know, some of my novels when I write with all my passion, there's no Danish language that you can put that into. So I, I, I tear it apart and invent my own words and my way of saying things. So I resorted now to writing in English. <laughs> but to get languages, just I think the more one accepts, it's always an interpretation. It becomes better because on the other side of that interpretation, you put it together again. A bit like Lego. Lego are these small boxes that they're nothing in themselves. But then when you start putting them together, you make something up and you can make a house that you can actually enter. And that's where we know things. It's once we have, by language, created a building we can step into. But each language then presumably is a subtly different kind. I mean, Danish may be Lego and English may be Playmobil <laughs> and you know, Norwegian. Yes. I'm, I'm running out of, you know, kind yeah, of no, uh, but that's absolutely, here, absolutely, but. because it depends on, on the, uh, the geography, topography, the history of a country, what kind of language you have. I mean, okay. the Greenlanders have many words for snow. We don't in Denmark. We have many words for rain and border. <laughs> <laughs> so, and bacon. But, and bacon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're in Welsh too. Yeah. I, I mean, Robert, can I turn to you for a moment, uh, for a moment here? Because structuralists certainly spent a large part of the early 20th century, Fernand de Saussure and others, discussing the questions of the, the signification of language and its relationship to reality. Fast forward us to where we are in the early 21st century. How far, if at all, have, has the philosophy of linguistics come in terms of being able to capture or not capture something called reality? Um, well, it's, it's probably come quite a long way, but the, uh, as ever, the problem is in the question, really. Um, I mean, in my view, re reality itself is a fantasy, and I think it's being acted out even in our conversation here, because we're positing this thing over there, or up there, or beyond us, called reality, which language over here might or might not be able to use your word capture, as though it's a kind of net or whatever it might mm. be that could, could reel it in in some way. So what does that do? You know, it, it projects this thing called reality um, as a sort of fantasy. So it's a fantasy of reality, all right? First thing to say. 
Second thing to say is that it assumes that language is not part of reality. Well, it seems to me we're at an event which is based around lots of talks, right? And people are going, you know, all weekend of the next two weeks to lots and lots of events based around talks. Are we at a real event? I, mean, I think they we are at a real seven event. quid, so that's pretty damn right. Real. I mean, I think we're at a real event, and the, the words we're using are real, and they're having real effects on people. Well, actually, I'd come back to what you said right at the beginning, Yana, about our bodies being made of the same atomic material as the rest of the universe. Well, in a way, it's analogous to the relationship for me between language and reality. Language is, the, you know, is atomically made up of the same stuff as everything else that's going on in reality. So the idea of a sort of schism or chasm between the two seems to me odd. But, but surely not quite in one sense, um, uh, at least one sense, Robert, because, uh, and again, I'm going to look away from the particle physicist, the theoretical physicist who actually knows what he's talking about at this point, but <laughs> at some level we are all real in the sense that Yana means because at some level we're all made up of particles that were eventually created, were originally created in the heart of a star. That's not the kind of reality that our construction of spoken language is. It doesn't exist in that sort of material sense. Well, I'm hearing you. There are sound waves. It's having an effect, you know, it's having an emotional effect. But that's the noises, what's contained and understood oh, it's by It's not just the noises, the there's the significations you're making upon me. I make associations with those. Okay. So the emotion is right, you're the... starting to argue with me a bit. Yeah, yeah. He's going I, up I, in the room. I'm, I'm just feels about, quite real to me. I'm just worried about the fact that by this stage, the physicist we have here has a little dimension of something getting quite close to a sort of uh, non-realist and non-rational understanding, and the philosophy guy is going for hardcore realism. I think, <laughs> I, think I may have put something in all of your water at the, uh, no. at the beginning. Let me give you a, a kind of slightly more conventional answer to this. Um, so um, if you think of, uh, I mean... Famous philosophers like Kant in particular. So Kant said, essentially, we can never touch reality, even with language. And he talks about the thing in itself, the ding an sich. We'll never, ever be able to touch the real. But we're, if we use you know, reason well enough, we can have a pretty good proxy of it. You know? So we have a working knowledge of the world by using reason. Wittgenstein has a kind of similar argument. He says, you know, language might never actually be able to capture reality, but it's, it's pragmatic. So we can understand one another through conventional uses of words which we all understand, you know, and that we can make progress like that because well, we, know, we kind of know what we're talking about. And that's a kind of good enough solution. So we may not have reality, but we have a kind of ersatz, a substitute, a working, you know, world agreement that we can, we, we can function with. And, and let me pluck out, well, actually, two thoughts there. One is that presumably Wittgenstein being an Austrian, he would have been thinking this because he was highly militaristic. Yeah, no, would that be fair to... Uh... Fair to say, maybe not. Well, I'm not a philosopher, so I'll allow myself we'll allow to pass to on. But also that idea that <laughs> to we, the kind theorists. Of, we kind of know what we're talking about. In a sense, it sounds like a casual statement. Yeah. Actually, it's quite a profound one, isn't it? I think it is. Um, and actually, I think some fuzziness, it's interesting you ask about kind of latest developments. I think the tolerance for ambiguity in the world of philosophy, linguistics, even science is increasing, even as the demand for pre precision is going up at the same time. So it seems to me... Across all these disciplines, we have kind of two tracks going on. Greater and greater precision, whether it's measurement in science, greater and greater precision with argument in philosophy. But on the other hand, a kind of tolerance, yes, about ambiguity, haziness, intuition, the sense that certain things cannot be captured. So I think we're in a sort of quite a healthy state that we're kind of, we've got both a sort of tight and a loose approach going on simultaneously. And clearly, you know, one needs to marry the two. So, John, could I just uh, Please. say a couple of words? So, so, so one thing is that uh, no, language, okay, it's a convention for communication and, and sharing, right? I think this is what we would all agree on. But it's something that evolves, right? And uh, so I think 
one should not regard it as something that, that, is, that is fixed and is therefore limited. Since it can evolve, it may not be limited. And in fact, uh, we physicists, uh, we scientists in general, are continually uh, in the business of creating new meanings for old words, like penguin, for example. Ask me about it later. <laughs> or inventing new words to describe you know, new concepts, like slept on. Ask me about that one later, too. So, so I just wanted to inter interject that thought into this discussion of, uh, of language and its uh, potential limitations. The other thought that I wanted to inject into the discussion actually relates a little bit to what Robert just said just now and what Jana said earlier on. Of course, it's true that we're made of the same stuff as you know, other stuff in, in the universe, although most of it actually is probably made of stuff that we're not made of, but that's another story. But, but the rules that operate at, at the subatomic level are completely different from the classical rules that we're familiar with uh, day by day. And this is one of the really major things that you know, physicists have come to realize over the past century. And initially, indeed, we found it this quantum world that operates in the subatomic scale, intensely puzzling and strange. And it is still not clear to me that we really understand the way in which it, it works. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So let me use that thought, if I may, John, just to close off this section. And I think we've had a, a very good kick around the, uh, the, the set of questions that we've been asking about whether language, science, these sort of toolboxes that we have are sufficiently able to describe reality. And I think there's a sense in which we all seem to be in a similar position, more or less, that... There are very great numbers of things we can understand, but there are some things that perhaps fall out with that. Let's move that on to a related theme, which is the question of how far we as humans are limited and constrained in terms of what we can understand. And to start that off, I wanted to use a thought that came from actually, I was just reading a book by um, Steve Jones, the, uh, the physicist who's been writing actually about the history of science recently. And he points out, I mean, again, something that's, I think, well known, but well worth pointing out again, that Many species, other than our own, including um, various uh, um, non-human primates and other mammals, have sensory perceptions and abilities to understand the world with ranges that are quite different from ours. So we can see um, three uh, sort of red, blue, green uh, in terms of light. I think um, red and green are not distinguished by dogs and cats, but many birds have a fourth range that we don't have. I mean, John, let me throw it back to you just to perhaps to pick up the thought there. How far... It's a sort of Donald Rumsfeld thing, isn't it? Kind of known knowns and known unknowns. How much do our known, uh, un, uh, sorry, our known unknowns, the things that we know that we can't know about reality, maybe those extra senses or ways of, of seeing or senses or whatever, change how much we can understand about the universe as a whole? Ah, uh, well, I, I wouldn't sort of be so worried about the known unknowns. I think I'd be more worried about the unknown unknowns. 
which I think was another Rumsfeld uh, coinage. Yeah, well, it, it went rather wrong. But, uh, but the distinction I'm making here is that we know we can't see certain types of, you know, light that, say, a bird. Can we see. can't see, yeah, okay. But does that change the way in which we understand the world, which we understand in a very different way from the way a bird would do? Yeah, yeah well, this comes back a little bit to uh, a point that I made in my opening remarks, is that uh, we human beings have uh, you know, found ways of overcoming the limitations of our senses. And uh, so I think you know, we nowadays perceive reality in a very different way than you know, the guys running around the savannah two million years ago. Um, I mean, just to pick up the last thought, I would like to move around, but actually it's an interesting way to, to, to put it. Obviously, in, some, in, in many ways, not least in terms of the level of knowledge that we have, we think very differently from the guys on Savannah two million years ago. But is there a fundamental difference in terms of the way in which we, we know in the present day? Or is it just that we have more information and greater numbers of frameworks within which through, through which to process that knowledge? Well, I, I, I think clearly there are differences because uh, you know, we now have tools that we can use to uh, expand our senses and see things that... Uh, Know, the people running around the savannah could could, could not see. Uh, there's still things we can't see, uh, like like dark matter, for example. We haven't figured out a way of detecting dark matter uh, and, and dark energy, which is actually most of the stuff in the universe. We have absolutely no idea how to uh, how to perceive directly. So there, there certainly still are limitations. Uh, but, uh, but that's just a problem that hasn't been cracked yet, in a sense, is all be it a huge Right, right. So I was going to come back to a remark that Robert made at the beginning, that uh, you know, our knowledge is provisional and it can be updated or upgraded. And you know, we have ideas about how we might be able to de detect dark matter, for example, which uh, you know, might well pan out one of these days. Indeed. Well, I have to say, if you try one of the uh, pies I had down at the festival <laughs> earlier on, you might find out some very interesting things about dark matter, but perhaps that's an <laughs> experiment beyond what the lab will, uh, will, will permit. As a novelist, Jana, do you find yourself ever wanting to imagine ways of knowing or understanding beyond the realms of what we would consider real. I mean, you know, at one level, clearly people who write everything from fantasy to science, to science fiction do this in certain ways. I know that's not your genre, but do you find yourself thinking beyond the imaginable and the real by privilege of the fact that you're, uh, you're a novelist? Yeah, so maybe it comes the other way around, that um, I'm a novelist because I think like that, ah. that I do or can't help always imagining that things could be different and what if and when I have done one of my book um, flying horses and it's just very natural and I I feel I know what it is to be a flying horse and it's I think if you have imagination then you can very easily extrapolate again from very little knowledge about something into a very strong sensation of how this would be. Could you briefly just walk us through that process or fly us through it perhaps is the right phrase to have you say you imagine what it is to be a flying horse what is it to be a flying horse how, how do you imagine it i mean it's, you have to start imagining you're a horse okay and, <laughs> um what do you do we all kind of know yeah you feel exactly in your ribs you're feeling your stomach you feel you know you're a pretty heavy animal you have four strong legs and you have hooves and you have to know which horse and i'll imagine like not too heavy a horse that's heavy if you shall fly, but also not a, th a thoroughbred because they're a little hysterical. A good, solid, mixed-breed horse uh, um, that likes the world, uh, you know, has good drawings. And 
um, loves to run very, very, very fast. And if you can feel that rhythm of a horse that really runs fast, you know, you close your eyes and you imagine you're that horse that runs over the field, up a hill and then down a hill, and suddenly it spreads these wings from the back and it just takes off. And that horse heaviness it has when it stands still so trots, that's almost lost when it gallops, it's totally gone when it flies. I'm there. I'm totally there. So, you see, <laughs> and that's what it feels like, that you're suddenly one with the, the air that you know, a really fast galloping horse is almost, but you, yeah, you're off. Hey, Robert, Jana's a human being. She's a macroeconomist, but she's a human being. <laughs> and she's just taken us through being not just even a horse, but a horse that flies. What, <laughs> what has she done there with reality? Well, I think she's reminded us that although we're at a philosophy festival, that there are ways of understanding reality which aren't technical, which aren't philosophical, which aren't scientific even. And so I've been thinking about kind of Heidegger's work on this. So he says, you know, he's sort of against all of those ways of understanding, really technical, scientific, and so on, because he says they all take us away from the nature of being. That's the problem. They, they are mm. too sophisticated. He's not really saying we should stop, but he's saying there's a, there's a real problem with science, with you know, professional philosophy. It just gets too technical. And it means that we can't really understand what the nature of being is. And he says, actually, the best predisposition we can have to being is not one which would be the effort of understanding it. He says, actually, what we need to go back to is the, uh, an attitude of being in a state of wonder in front of it. He says that, actually, this is the, this is the more prized uh, position or attitude that human beings ought to have towards reality, the world, and being than this sort of very functional, instrumental, you know, let's understand reality, let's parse it, let's break it down, let's, um, let's package it up scientifically. Now, oh, it's quite an extreme view. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have, yeah. I have to add yeah. also. Yeah. Okay, so let's just bring, bring John in and then Jana. John. I, I, I'm going to protest. I think this sense of wonderment is in no way contradictory to, no, to science. It's not. Uh, I think if you, you know, follow what's been going on with these gravitational waves, it really excites a sense of wonder. So... But then maybe what I comes in here is also to love, not just to wonder. Because if you think there's something love does in our brain, it's probably chemical that you people can explain. But what it does is it makes us able to understand the other. And often also that's why it makes us blind, because suddenly we can understand even, you know, behavior that we would normally consider unacceptable, but we know where it's coming from, so we consider it acceptable when we love. But it's, it's so amazing, and we then love the world and life, that's where you understand it also. So it's maybe, you know, the wonder can go all ways that we need to explain and so, but we also know when we try to explain love, it, it falls apart. It's not, it's not in that explanation ever what we really love. But when we love, we understand. I mean, John, would you people ever be able to explain love? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't <laughs> Well, I... Um... I don't know that I can as a, as a physicist. But you know, you know some people who can? Uh, well, I think if you talk to an evolutionary biologist, they would tell you that they do have an understanding of you know, why there is such a thing as love, which maybe is not quite the question, but uh, it's pretty damn close. And if I were to ask the same question to you people, Robert, the philosophers, <laughs> would they come up with an answer that is compatible with that reality? Yes, it's, it's compatible with it. It's less functional. I mean, there are endless philosophies of love. I mean, philosophy, in a sense, writes about nothing else you know, a lot of the time. Um, I mean, Plato's definition of love is that it's, it's the first step towards the divine, actually. Human love is the first step towards the divine. I'm guessing John's not going to like that as an explanation. 
I, I was just moving my head randomly. It wasn't that, <laughs> it wasn't that, that, that I profoundly disagreed that, <laughs> with Plato. That, that, that was perhaps an evolutionary gesture there. Perhaps then it, it leads us to um, the, the, the next theme that we want to take up. And I think we've explored a little bit that idea of whether or not the human um, condition is able to explain and know and understand. And I think that question of the imagination, whether it's a, a, a neurological phenomenon, a physiological phenomenon, or something that has something beyond that, will we ever actually be able to eradicate our idea of the unknown, the puzzling, something that will ultimately fox us and defeat us in terms of, uh, uh, of reality? And Robert, let me start with you this time around. Do you think that, I mean, we're not talking necessarily here just about data and um, scientific empiricism. We could be talking about other ways of knowing. They could be, uh, it could be philosophical or, or uh, 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 ethical or otherwise. But is there a sense in which we can ultimately, in some scenario, know everything? Um, I mean, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, mainly because, you know, whether one likes uh, the work of psychoanalysis or not, for example, I think the possibility of an unconscious, even within us, that there are things within our own minds that we don't understand or come to surprise us, that we still dream, that we still make mistakes, that we make slips of the tongue, all those things that you know, Freud first identified suggest that there are other agencies, even in the most kind of intimate precincts of our own minds, which are defeating us. I mean, Freud's phrase for this is that you know, we're not even masters in our own house, you know, because the mind you know, remains to some extent, even for each of us, you know, an enigma in some way. I mean, you've been saying that, talking about writing, haven't you, Yana, that your characters take off and they do stuff that you don't want them to do. Are you master in your own house? Perhaps not. No. Uh, my stomach is in stomach that's, is the that's where the, the knowledge of that sits. But, um, I mean, this thing of understanding, you know, why are we here, which is also what it's, what it's about, the thing is that I don't think we need to understand everything about life, whether there's a God or an Allah or nothing. We can never, I don't think we can ever know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll know more and more, but I don't think we'll ever absolutely know, or if there's only Big Bang or, but we do know that we are here and we are here right now. And we have this gift that is life and maybe exactly because we don't know why it's here or where it, what happens when we die or something, it makes it so much more amazing. We have a gift, we don't know why we have it. It's a great statement. I wonder, John, to a scientist, whether it's a provocation for someone to say, maybe we don't need to know everything. Are you sympathetic to that idea? Well, first of all, I don't think we can know everything. I think I stated that pretty clearly at the beginning. At this stage, maybe I should apologize for having popularized the term theory of everything, uh, which uh, has been sort of misinterpreted, I think. What I, what I understood by that statement originally was that you know, a set of fundamental laws maybe we can you know, put our hands on, but how those fundamental laws actually work themselves out in practice is a completely different story. And if I come back to what you were saying earlier on about Lego bricks, I mean, we may be able as physicists to understand you know, what are the Lego bricks, but then you know, everybody is free to construct their own flying horses out of those Lego bricks, and in particular the universe. And uh, I think we, could, we would require an infinite amount of time to understand uh, you know, what flying horses the universe constructs out of those Lego bricks. And also we might have 
each other, you know, all of us, our own flying horses, and can we understand each other's flying horses? So, right. Well, we, <laughs> we, we got language to help us there. So I think we, but perhaps I could just pick up on, on one yeah, other thing. Then so, as a scientist, uh, I would completely reject the idea that we are masters of anything. We are entirely the servants of the reality that is out there, uh, and you know, nature. You know, communicates to us, you know, and we try to understand what those messages are. But fundamentally, it's nature, it's experiment, it's empirical reality that is dominant over the scientist. So I think that's a very good note on which I want to come back to each of you now, as we're near the end, with the same question, but I'm interested to see what perhaps rather different answers you might give to it, which is, as we think about the near future, perhaps, let's hope, within our own lifetimes, within the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years even, how might people be thinking differently about reality compared to what they are now? It could be that we know more, or we know in a different way, or that perhaps there will be some fundamental change in the way that we think about it. I mean, let me perhaps throw it back to you first, John. Well, I, I think we will know more about the, the mechanics of the way the universe works and the way it's evolved and maybe a little bit more about what's going to happen is, in the Is future. that the dark matter problem, for instance? For example, for example. No, trivial little things like that. You know, just understanding the remaining 95% of the universe that we don't understand. But whether we'll make progress on the really you know, basic issues, like you know, why are we here, what is love, uh, I'm dubious. Well, Jan, how about you, as someone who's going to be writing novels, we hope, for some time to come? Do you think that you're going to be able to change the way that we think about What's real? No, but I hope I can write some novels that make some questions that you know can help us ponder it even more. So I totally agree. We are not going to find answers to the existential questions of, of the meaning of life. They've existed always. They will always exist. Is that but a defeated position, defeatist position for a novelist? You're starting off saying we're not going to solve the problems of life. No, 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 no. I don't write plots where you have to find out who killed who. I... <laughs> But, so, it's, but it's great but, that we can't solve things. Yeah, exactly. That's also why it makes life so amazing. I mean, my novel Nothing, which doesn't imply that nothing has a meaning, but it's exactly about all that questioning everything in, in life. And my question was, okay, you open all these windows in this house of the dark existential question we can't answer, but isn't it great we can't answer? It just makes life so much more amazing. Um, but... I want to say, I think, yeah, we will understand a lot more technicalities of the universe and of life on Earth. And I also think uh, one thing that's really fundamental that we'll understand more is that we are not as so distinct as beings as we think today. I have an absolute you know, conviction that our energies interact among human beings, among you know, animals, maybe planets, so that it's, and, and even I think scientists will actually be able to prove it one day. And, but it'll show how, yeah, we cannot think that whatever we do is in a closed shell, that it won't influence everything else around us, and more, you know, more or less, but it will. And I think that we will know about in 30, 40 years, and that will change our perception of individualism, of, of humanity, and of life on Earth. Jana, thanks for that. Robert, how about how will reality have changed from where you sit and think in 20, 30, 50 years? So I think I'm going to give two completely different answers to this. Um, the second one will be about politics, actually, so nothing to do with what we've spoken about. But the first one, I think partly to pick up on your point, John, I mean that we will just have so much more data, more and more data will be generated. 
So the issue will not be about what more do we know about reality. It'll be how do we make sense of all the information that we have. Mm. I think that's going to be the key question. And the need what if that for... information is that Donald Trump is president? Can we make sense of that? No, no that will remain a deep mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happens. Worse than the black the holes. <laughs> so I think the, the challenge is not necessarily, you know, will we understand everything? I mean, you know, we'll get more and more data. It's what we do with it. It's the frames we use with which to interpret it. I think that's, you know, asking the right questions, interpreting what comes out, I think it's going to become the, the challenge. The political point about knowing everything. I mean... Then the background of all of this is the kind of huge movement towards, if you think about Panama Papers, Snowden, WikiLeaks, we are starting to know a lot more about reality, about what really happens behind the doors of corporations and the lives of politicians and so on. And I think that movement, that horse is bolted, it hasn't got wings yet, but I think you know, the, 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 the door that's open now to transparency you know, will never be shut again. And I think, uh, you know, the reality that is now being served up to us about how things work in the kind of political financial uh, world will give us an increasing set of uh, philosophical questions, really, again, about laws, morals, ethics, and so on. And I think that's going to become an increasingly important task for us, really, about how we manage the reality as it becomes more and more kind of revealed to us, I think, right? Thanks for that. I'd like to thank our wonderful speakers, Robert Roland-Smith, John Ellis, and Jana Teller. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.